the five-year history of this program, we've told a lot of stories involving the DRO. Called by some the Department of Restricted Operations, but by most, Deep Red Ops. The DRO is the sadistic younger sibling of the FBI and the CIA. It exists in shadows. Autonomous, self-funded, no oversight, and utterly feared throughout the world of law enforcement. They experiment with fringe science. They run behavioral programs on innocent civilians. They recruit lunatics and serial killers into their ranks. And they do far worse. It is said that a few bad apples can spoil the bunch. But in this case, the DRO is almost entirely made of bad apples, with only a few good ones who actually have something to believe in. This is the story of one such agent. His name is Ed Carson, assigned to the Las Vegas branch. In many ways, Ed is a traditional agent, but he has tremendous ambition, as well as the desire to climb the ranks and make a name for himself. He also has a secret agenda. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. When it comes to the sewer system under Las Vegas... There are a lot of differing opinions and statistics. Some say there are 300 miles worth of tunnels under the valley in Clark County. Some say it's more like 600 miles. These are all mostly unmapped, which is why no one can agree on a definitive number. Hundreds of people live down there in those tunnels, and maybe more. Many of these folks are passing through, they use the subterranean darkness as a way to escape the brutal Nevada heat. Others make this place their long-term residence, staying for years and building nest-like homes for themselves. This has come up frequently in social media recently, but it's nothing new. Field journalist Matthew O'Brien published the famous book Beneath the Neon, Life and Death in the Tunnels of Las Vegas back in 2007. And that was after spending years traversing those tunnels and meeting many of the residents. And even back then in the early 2000s, there had been people living in the tunnels for decades. No doubt since right after they were built. There are ongoing humanitarian efforts to rescue people from these tunnels, but the charity workers 
have to move very slowly and with great caution. Dangers and secrets are abound in these tunnels, in this massive, inky, black labyrinth. It has been alleged that organized crime families started to use the tunnels to move contraband and to facilitate human trafficking. It has been alleged there are predatory groups and gangs who fight over territory and demand tribute from residents. It has been alleged there is a chapel to the Ophidian, one that was already there before the tunnels were ever built. It has also been alleged that the deepest, darkest part of the system stops at the edge of a chasm where eldritch things lay in wait. Which is precisely what makes this the sort of place that draws the attention of the DRO. In this case, an up-and-coming field operative named Ed Carson. There had been a few brief sojourns beneath the streets in the past, but Deep Red Ops had never staged anything major. Carson proposed going in solo, embedding himself with the locals to use them as guides. His plan would take months, perhaps over a year, during which time he would plot out the precise layout of these tunnels, as well as providing key intel on the denizens. This proved to be the operation that put Ed Carson on the map as someone to watch. He spent nine months living underground. As far as his bosses knew, he never came up till the job was finished. Of course, his bosses didn't know about the access tunnel that led out beyond the city limits to the edge of the desert. Ed went out several times to hold clandestine meetings with figures beyond the reach of the DRO. But his work and his results were rock solid. It was considered to be the Bible for the Las Vegas underground, and redacted portions of the maps and tracking data were actually shared with other law enforcement agencies as a sign of good faith. The DRO engaged in this good faith because they decided that the tunnels were more trouble than they were worth. There were too many outside forces that also used them. There was also a high likelihood of a mutant presence in the deepest pits. This made it a very unreliable setting for field projects or experiments. After taking a short vacation, Ed Carson was back on the job, now permanently assigned to the Las Vegas field office. Ed was not pleased with this. He wanted the mole people to lead him away from this place and into some real action. Las Vegas might be great for tourism, but when it came to DRO-style field work, it was deadly dull. Besides, Ed wasn't looking to stay still. His role model was an agent named Bill Handel, the last real golden boy the outfit had ever seen. Bill started as a field agent 
And now he was acting director. Like Bill, Ed Carson had designs to move up in the DRO. And he knew that if he stayed in Vegas, he would never realize those goals. He had patience. But it was wearing thin when he started to hear chatter about something big coming to town. Something to do with the priest with red hands and his ghoulish followers targeting a convention. Ed decided that he would sit on those rumors instead of passing them up the chain of command. In his humble estimation, preventing a possible major event, that wouldn't get him the attention he was looking for. But to respond to the aftermath, to contain the fallout, to be the first on the scene, that might put him on somebody's radar. Maybe even Bill Handel, who was allegedly always looking for good people. Either that, or he would be labeled a fuck-up, and he would be transferred or fired. No matter what happened, he would finally be done with Vegas. One night, Ed was in his apartment catching up on some old case files and incident reports when he got a phone call from a hidden number. This was standard protocol for DRO higher-ups, so he quickly answered. But it wasn't someone from the DRO. It was a woman Ed didn't know and had never met or spoken to. And yet, this woman knew everything about him. Everything. Even the things the DRO didn't know. And that was just to set the table to earn Ed's trust so that he would believe her when she told him that his entire family was dead. She explained how the events had unfolded and how they had horrifically perished. Most importantly... She told him who was responsible for it. And then she gave him a path forward. She could help him. But only if he did something for her first. Six weeks later, a madman named Darmesh Anan coordinated a mass attack on a nerd fest called the Fantasticon. Scores of dead and wounded as well as 80 hand amputations. Ed was first on the scene. He couldn't contain his smirk when he spoke with Bill fucking Handel himself over the headset. Finally, Ed Carson was going places.
Or maybe he wasn't. Maybe he wasn't going anywhere at all. Ed Carson was not reassigned, and several months later was still trapped in his Las Vegas life. He had grown to see it all as a cage, and he didn't have the key. One does not simply walk away from Deep Red Ops now, do they? And where would he go? What could he do? Just like his father, Spycraft was Ed's only skill set. And you know, that mysterious woman never did call back. Over enough time, Ed started to think it was all a horrible fabrication of his imagination. Because he couldn't just reach out to his family for confirmation, now could he? And then, like a blessed bolt of lightning out of the baby blue sky, he got another call from a hidden number. It was Kevin Koja, who had been made the chief of staff for Bill Handel after assuming leadership of the Department of Restricted Operations. Bill was no longer acting director. It was permanent. The golden boy had completed his arc, and now he was the boss of bosses. Agent Carson, I'm a fan of your work. It's detail-oriented. Thorough. I like that. Thank you, Special Agent Koja. There's a special assignment, and your name came up. Are you interested? Yes, sir. Do you want to know what it is? Yes, sir. But it doesn't matter, sir. <laughs> Have you heard about the hoax with the cruise ship, the Caribbean Queen? A little, sir. It wasn't a hoax. We just spun it that way. There is, supposedly, something on that ship that we need you to verify for us. We feel you have the necessary up-close-and-personal experience to handle it. What do they allege, sir? Eighty severed hands. The missing severed hands from the convention center? That is for you to prove or disprove, Agent Carson. You're going out to sea. Technology may not be reliable where you're going, so bring an old-fashioned fingerprinting kit as well. Three hours later, Ed Carson was in a private jet, refreshing himself on the source material as he raced towards the Florida coast, where a boat would be waiting for him, and an escort. Koja had been thrifty with details, but this escort was part of a local group that was unofficially a friend and ally of the DRO. And this came from on high. It wasn't to be questioned, examined, or speculated upon. These people were friendlies, and Ed was to be friendly in return. He took off his shoes and reclined in his seat. Not only was he finally leaving the desert, he was going to the ocean. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. Letting that attack happen was one of his better decisions. The plane touching down woke him. He put on his shoes, straightened his hair and his black tie, and collected his gear. A man with a car was waiting for him on the tarmac. Ed, 
Agent Carson, thank you. Okay, then. The man decided not to extend a hand. I'm Manny. The boat will be ready when we get there. Ed rode quietly, even as Manny fiddled with the radio until he found something that he liked. In all honesty, Ed kind of liked Manny. But the agents of Deep Red Ops had an image to maintain. Frivolity not being a key part of that platform. Ed tried to keep Bill Handel in mind and stay quiet, reserved, and hopefully easy to forget once he was gone. Manny parked at the marina. He took his sidearm out of the console and popped the trunk to fetch the riot gun. Are we expecting trouble out there? You never know, amigo, Manny said as he checked the action on that gun. Was it an unspoken threat? Ed was welcome here to a certain degree, but not that welcome. There was an unmarked 40-footer waiting for them. No crew, just a captain, Manny, and Ed. During the voyage, Ed wandered the boat, having never been on one before. He'd gone canoeing and kayaking once or twice, but he'd never been on a real boat like this. The ride took several hours. Eventually, he found himself up top with Manny, who was hanging out alongside the captain and having an icy cold tall boy of beer. Captain, this is Ed. He's hardcore DRO, Shermie. He looks the part. The salty sea dog said, with one eye squinting as he eyed up the new man. Tell him your name, Captain. Captain Shermichaelis Carruthers, at your service, Agent. Manny howled and clapped his knee. Dude, you have the coolest fucking name I've ever fucking heard. Ed Carson? White bread, bro. Manny Cortez? That's whole wheat toast. But Shermichaelis Carruthers, that's a name with some vinegar on it. Ed wandered away again, not wanting to form any personal connections. And with Manny, that was sort of hard to do. Finally, the Caribbean Queen came into view. She was a massive ship and had undergone a few alterations as of late. There were three other vessels of various sizes tied up at a newly added floating dock. A series of drift anchors extended outward in three directions, keeping the cruise ship's position mostly stable. This was a military-grade operation, and it had personnel to match. Ed spotted half a dozen armed men and women on the decks. How long you think this is going to take? Manny asked as they climbed the tall ladder on the side of the ship. It won't take long. You may say that now, but wait till you get a load of the view, Hermano. Ed really didn't know what Manny meant. Not until he got to the foredeck, and he was leaning against the railing, gazing across the water at the breach. 
It's breathtaking, he murmured. Ha! All you DRO guys say that. Come on, man. Let's get to work. They were below decks now, in a private room containing nothing but the eighty severed hands laid out into rows, and the wooden barrel they had come packed in. Manny leaned against the far wall, watching as Ed went to work. He stripped off his jacket and loosened his tie. Inside his satchel was a thin Halliburton briefcase that he gently set on the floor and popped open. He took out the digital scanner and the stack of printing cards, each one in its own little plastic bag. He was going to digitally print all of the hands as well as manually doing it too. The DRO did not want to risk losing this data. He pulled on a pair of surgical gloves and started with the first hand in the first row. He simply pressed one of the fingers against the screen which logged and saved the image and results. Then he touched the same finger to an ink pad and rolled out a print. Index fingers when possible, but it wasn't often possible. Were this something like a David Fincher movie, this would be the point where we got a cool montage full of quick cuts making it look exciting while intense music blared. But instead of music, there were just the creaks and groans of the gently moving cruise ship. There was no montage, no excitement, just the monotonous work of printing so many fingers. Although it was grisly and odorous, that made it no less dull. When it was all done, Ed attached a small, thin laser pen to the scanner and used it to go over the outside of the barrel. The scanner began to beep in rapid succession. Manny came over for a closer look. What's the ruckus? The machine recognizes all these new prints because they're already in the files. These prints, he pointed to the barrel, match all of those prints, he gestured around the room. Manny nodded. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. Because they all crawled in there. Or because the priest wanted us to think that. (laughs) Oh, damn, you're new to this, aren't you? I've got years of field experience, Mr. Cortez. Not enough. Gotta say, the idea of severed hands crawling around barely cracks the top ten of weird shit I've seen. Ed took off the gloves, stowed his gear in the briefcase, then tightened his tie 
and put his jacket back on. Maybe it was because he was so tired. Maybe it was because he had been so lonely the last few months. Or maybe it was just that manny magic working on him. But as he straightened that knot, he loosened his tongue, if only for a moment. I've been in Vegas for years. I was ready for any assignment. I didn't even ask what it was. And this might be the last thing I was expecting. You must be regretting it. Vegas thumps. Sounds like a cherry gig to me, amigo. No, I don't regret it a bit. This is all fascinating. Manny opened the door. Fun's fun, but it was time to go. Although Manny was genuine, and this wasn't an act, his friendly nature belied his skill set and his abilities. Fun's fun, but Manny was still on the job. And now that the job was done, this outsider needed to go back outside. They both heard the ship's captain shouting before they reached the sunlight. Enid was barking orders, sending her people down to the floating dock to start removing all non-essential gear from the 20-foot speedboat they kept tethered there. Load extra fuel, but not too much, just enough to get us to shore. I need her lighter than fucking air, and I need churning water in five minutes. Yo, Cap, what gives? Manny asked. Enid pulled him away from Ed Carson and whispered into his ear. They took Jessica. The ice running down Manny's spine turned to steel, and he seemed three inches taller. He jumped the railing and half slid down that ladder to take charge on the dock and finish clearing out that boat double time. I'm gonna need to come too, Captain, Ed said respectfully. I work for the... Yeah, I know who you are. And yeah, you're coming with us. Because I'm not leaving you on my boat. Now hustle. Captain Enid went down first. Ed quickly checked his phone, but he had no reception. So he followed her down without checking in with his superiors, as he was supposed to. Three minutes later, the Caribbean Queen was getting smaller and smaller over the roar of their wake, as the three of them raced back to shore. Enid had long kept this boat tied up and serviced every few days for just such an occasion. It could easily handle 80 miles an hour, and in case of emergency, such as this, she could keep it at full throttle at 100 plus. A few miles out, Ed's sat phone came back to life. Immediately, there was an incoming call from a hidden number. He answered, but the noise of the engine and the water was too much. 
Even his shouts were drowned out. For fuck's sakes, Carson, mute your phone. This is Kevin Koja. The director would like to speak to you. Don't unmute yourself. Just listen. You don't have to talk. Because the only thing you could possibly say is yes, sir. There was a brief silence in his earpiece. And then another voice came on the line. Agent Carson, I expect that your work is up to standard and you have the data we need. There will be a courier waiting for you at the marina to take it. But I need you to stay with this. These are our allies and something that you're not cleared to know. Not yet. But you've seen a piece of it already, haven't you? It's haunting. I need you to go with them as a show of unity. You are supposed to be our best and brightest, so prove it. Help them. Do whatever you can do to facilitate their operation and to retrieve this girl. Hear me on this, Carson. I don't care if it means carrying their bags. You do it. You're answering to Sadie, but Special Agent Koja and I will be in touch. I certainly hope I can count on you, Edward. These are friends of ours, and you represent me. The line went dead. Ed took out his earpiece and leaned his head over the railing. Warm sea spray and foam slashed at his face with supersonic pins and needles. He smiled into it and whooped in a celebration no one else could hear, not even the people ten feet away. His patience was paying off. His decisions were paying off. And now his ultimate goal was in sight. To get close enough to Bill Handel so that he could kill him. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. You can find the show on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Contact the show directly at ascaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The best way to interact with and support the show is through our Patreon page. Currently, we're doing the giveaway. Sign up for the Patreon and get a free autographed copy of the new book, Bedtime Stories for Weird Kids. 21 bite-sized tales of the bizarre and the horrible, culled from old episodes of this show. It's also available through Amazon. But trust me, it's more fun to do it through the Patreon. You get lots of extras and bonus episodes no one else gets to hear. 
For example, Ed Carson, star of this story, appeared in an exclusive episode last year, and his father appeared in a different exclusive. You're not getting the whole story if you don't have the Patreon. The episode was edited and produced by Jeff Davidson and featured the music Through the Shadow Realms by Psycor, Shadow Trip by Reed Blue, The Shadow by Volatil, and The Shadow Weeped by Solar Flare. series of drift anchors extended outward in three direction. Zzz. Can you edit that? Direction zzz.